Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Today's episode is part of the Music and Popcorn miniseries where a guest joins us to talk about iconic movies and their soundtracks. And today, we'll be dodging crazed fans and determined hitmen to talk about the 1992 film and soundtrack for The Bodyguard. I know that when you look at me There's so much that you just don't see, but you Well, let's start with the facts. The Bodyguard is the best-selling soundtrack of all time, with 45 million copies sold worldwide, making it the 15th best-selling album in U.S. history. Its release in 1992, courtesy of Arista Records, earned all the rah-rah. Eight American Music Awards, 11 Billboard Music Awards, a Juno and a Brit, and three Grammys, including Album of the Year, an award won by only a handful of black artists, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, Herbie Hancock, Quincy Jones, and only two other black women, Natalie Cole in 1992 for Unforgettable, and Lauryn Hill for The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. The Oscar was the one that got away. That year, it went to Tim Rice and Alan Menken for Aladdin's A Whole New World. Bodyguard, the film and soundtrack, was a whole new world for Whitney Houston. Top billing, the lead in a role Kevin Costner had waited two years for her to be available for, a role originally attended for Diana Ross alongside Steve McQueen. Acclaim, a People's Choice Awards for her acting, and a host of new records achieved. Best this, first that, most this, most that. Add to that the distinction of an 18 million times platinum track listing and a $411 million flex. What's bigger? What's better than that? As the saying goes, icons do icon-ish. And the Bodyguard soundtrack saw Whitney Houston covering two iconic songs, housing up 1978 and Shaka's iconic mantra, I'm Every Woman, and reimagining Dolly Parton's 1974, I Will Always Love You, arguably the best 42nd a cappella opener ever, pressed to wax, which evolved into the most iconic 4 minute and 31 seconds ever pressed to wax, as the 12 million people who bought it would agree. Like other hit songs from hit soundtracks, Titanic's My Heart Will Go On, Purple Rain's Purple Rain, Saturday Night Fever, Staying Alive, Dirty Dancing, I Had the Time of My Life, this song hit different. And while there are so many words to describe this soundtrack, and believe me, more eloquent folks have written them all, different is the word that always comes to mind when I think of it. Across 13 tracks, Whitney Houston showed us that her range was different. In I Have Nothing, she showed us that her runs were different. In Run to You and Jesus Loves Me, she showed us that her register was different. And with five chart-murdering singles, she showed us that her reach was different. If only her story had been different. More like the time when the Queen of the Night was king for a day for weeks and the months after the soundtrack dropped, when Middle America and Black America both loved her, and the airways loved her, when her instrument was so pure, when all she needed to keep her safe was a bodyguard. But for a moment in 1992, she was everybody's everything. Just wish that love was all it took to save the day. I 
The Bodyguard was the movie and soundtrack pick of our guest today, April Wolf. Yes. When Morgan and I first cooked up the music and popcorn idea, April immediately came to mind as a guest since she has been the queen of Max Fun Movie Podcasts with her own Switchblade Sisters show, and she was formerly co-host for Who Shotcha. A former movie critic with the LA Weekly and Village Voice, these days April doesn't just write about movies, she's also writing movies, including this past winter's horror flick, Black Christmas, which she co-wrote alongside director Sophia Takal. April, welcome to Heat Rocks. Hi. Hi. It's great to be here. Keeping it in the family today. I love that. Indeed. Indeed. Why the bodyguard? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go in. All right. So, um, you know, set the stage of just being a kid in the 90s, loving Whitney Houston. Yeah. Growing up being like, I mean, in the 90s, it was just Everything was her. Yep. She was every woman. For sure. And I, I see what you just did there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's and, all in her. <laughs> and I think, you know, sometimes people forget how big of a star Kevin Costner was at that time, too. And oh, yeah. He was That's real. huge. He was powerful. And this was such a weird team up. You know, I remember when it was announced, I was just like, what is this? And it, it kind of felt like... And I'm sure that we'll get into this, that Whitney Houston was kind of taking this next step in her career. And right. we were like, OK, we need to get into this because it felt in the same way that like Madonna would release a new concept kind of album. Right. Yeah, yeah. But this was like, oh, this is something very different that we haven't seen yet. And so it just felt so exciting. And I just needed to see it in the theater. And I don't remember the movie like when, you know, from that time at all. But I remembered the soundtrack. You could not forget the soundtrack. You could not escape it. And uh, it was like, I, I honestly kind of don't remember the tracks that aren't Whitney Houston. Yeah. Right. And then when there's, I play them back, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about that. There's, there's reasons why you might forget the songs yeah. not by Whitney on the soundtrack. Yeah, that's, yeah, we'll yeah. That's, that, real. Yeah, yeah. that's real. Morgan, I'm going to designate you as the resident Houstonologist <laughs> in the room here. Can sure. you put into context where where was Whitney at this point in 92? I mean, her career had already been 10 years old at minimum. And was already a superstar. So where does this film fit into the trajectory of where Whitney was going and had been? Well, I think she was um, definitely made, as we said. She she was made. Um, she had already had a, a series of hits. She was already reigning supreme. I think she had already done, just done the Star Spangled Banner. So that mm -hmm. was 1991. Mm -hmm. So Whitney couldn't be touched. Like, we already knew what Whitney could do. Uh, with a song in her image was still very pristine. Um, there was such an innocence about her, which I think lent itself to this to this role. Although she came across, and we get a, get, get into this a little bit later as yeah. as a star on the edge, right, right? right? But I think the decision to go, if you not to take anything away from Diana Ross, but I think Whitney Houston probably had had it been today, this would be Beyonce, right? Mm -hmm. No oh, question, yeah. right? No question. Yeah. S same sort of trajectory, same sort of rise. All the albums have been hit. She'd had a complete a slew of number one singles, mm -hmm. like a slew of number one singles, a hit album before this, so she was primed and ready. Was she ready to take on an acting role? That remains to be seen, okay? And we know what the we know what the critics said. Right. But I think because of the way a lot of nineties movies were, it was just about image and she did it didn't require her to be a great actress. Right. She was a great, huge star. And that's what this film needed. She couldn't be touched. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that there would have been a close second to play this role besides Whitney. This was my first time watching the film. And I had never really done a deep dive into anything about it outside of knowing, yes, it's got Whitney and it's got Kevin. It's got the best-selling soundtrack of all time. I didn't realize that Lawrence 
Kasdan wrote it. And yeah. of course, for me, as in the generation that I am, I disassociate him with Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. this was something that he wrote, I believe, in around 1975. And, and to go back to something that Morgan had said earlier, um, it was really, originally meant to be a vehicle for Diana Ross, which would have played the same role as Whitney. And I've heard different actors in Costner's role. You had mentioned... Ryan O'Neill. And I had heard Steve McQueen. Mm. All of which kind of makes, like, Kevin Costner sort of fits into, in a vague way, that kind of casting, that kind of look, mm-hmm. sort yeah. of personality. And we'll get into sort of the qualities of the film as craft, but I think the the basic bones of the idea, I think, work pretty well. Like, a basic story of... There's a, a superstar and someone's trying to kill her. We don't know who. And there's a bodyguard assigned and there's some kind of romantic sexual tension. Like that works on paper. It's like a, a an elevator pitch. Absolutely. And so it surprises me that this film wasn't made in some version sooner because especially when you think about all the thrillers coming out of the 70s and in the 80s, mm-hmm. this kind of basic storyline would you would think would have made a perfect kind of film. And for somebody else. You know what I'm saying? So Whitney wasn't the only pop star around this time. We, sure. we also had Madonna around this time. Mm-hmm. So surprising that this wasn't a vehicle for Madonna. And as controversial as it ended up being, be, having an interracial love right. affair. Which never uh, gets addressed, which is interesting. Right, right which yeah. never gets addressed. Um, except I bought a clip, and we, we can get to that later. But I'm surprised no one thought Madonna first. That the original casting was always going to be, if it was going to be Diana Ross and Ryan O'Neill, that this was always going to be an interracial love story. But it's just interesting that this didn't, someone didn't veto that and be like, what about Madonna? Well, I think it's, I mean, one of the reasons why it seems that they went with Whitney is that, and no offense to Madonna, I mean, she she doesn't have the kind of vocal capabilities that Whitney Houston did like never right <laughs> so truer words uh so i mean like she's spoken. a great like stylist of of things and you know she's got a great image and and that was always kind of fun you know doing creative things but whitney houston was just you know pure obviously a raw singer sure and that's what kevin costner was was looking for was that um you know because he was thinking early on what the songs were going to be you know as they were going through casting it was just like i know the songs and i know the person who can sing them yeah. and mm. and you know like you're not going to go with someone who doesn't have that vocal doesn't range doesn't have the chops yeah. yeah right yeah so i said that the the first time i watched this film was literally this week to, to prep for it what were your initial thoughts of it then and if you've watched it more recently i'm curious how your thoughts may or may not have changed in that time it's funny when you're a kid i don't think you have any taste in film <laughs> You know, they're just like, cool, someone put a thing in front of my eyes. <laughs> Great. Uh, so I, I think that um, uh, I was just like, yeah, it's fine. I'm waiting for her to sing the songs. Right. And the live performances that you see are the things that I remember. I did not remember anything else. But those performances, it was just like, yeah. So it was almost to me like a concert video that I remember as opposed to the movie itself. Which is fascinating because given that this is a this is not a short film. I mean, it's over two hours. Yeah. Sure. And the, the amount of actual music in it is surprisingly small considering yeah. that you booked Whitney Houston to play it. And mm-hmm. you would think you would create more opportunities. But there's not that many musical moments in the grand scheme of it. I don't think this is a real hot take because to me it seems like an obvious point is that what rescues this film is the fact that the soundtrack was the best-selling soundtrack of, of all time. time. Yeah. And that went a long distance to paper over whatever kinds of formal flaws you can find in the film, which is, to, to be quite honest, at least from someone who just watched it, I think sizable. Absolutely. Um, the runtime is at least 20 to 30% too long. 
But I do think that the most common complaint that people made about this film is that the chemistry between Houston and Costner, not really there. And watching it for the first time, going in knowing that was a common complaint, I actually thought they had some decent moments. But for whatever reason, whether it was in the writing or the directing, they didn't create enough moments for them to have, I think, good chemistry for, with one another. And mm. to me, it was kind of a missed opportunity to just, just do more with that because the, you would think the story re- would require it. And it's not really there. I think they I think they took too long trying to establish um, Whitney, uh, Whitney's character um, as someone that didn't want to be protected. And I think she has a line where she says um, something like, you, you may not have heard about me, but I have a reputation for being a And I think they t- took too long to create her sort of, you know, whatever difficult star Mm -hmm. and to sort of ice him out Mm -hmm. so that had they gotten to that a little bit earlier I think we would have seen the chemistry a little bit earlier I like the chemistry between them because the way she was looking at him and when it clicked it clicked I mean one of the the coolest scenes is when he takes her into that red state bar that they go into (laughs) yeah and they're slow dancing and they're slow dancing right and that there's that gentrified I will always love you which I think is a good tease of what the final song is going to be because by by John Doe Mm -hmm. I was like who is that you know it may not have been uh, potent enough for audiences but I like the chemistry Mm. I like the chemistry between them I like that she you know softened up a little bit there was a lot of back and forth between I'm angry at you now now I love you but that's just relationships right he seemed like the only person in her world that actually cared. Oh, like everybody yeah. else seemed like they were there for whatever. They were right. obsessed with the stardom. Right. So I did like that. I liked the costuming. I don't know who the costume designer was, but there's some it, nice fits in this. My God, that what is the the uh, Queen, Queen of the, of the Night? Night? Oh, that is iconic. Yeah. Man, gorgeous. April, how about you? I enjoyed the cinematography of this movie. Mm. Yeah. You can obviously tell, I think, in the stage performances or, you know, the um, the kind of the moody bar scene. You know, I just really liked the framing. I liked the cinematography. Yeah. There was like a kind of patience to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that also it lends itself to making the movie feel a little bit too long. So I think mm-hmm. that the cinematography and the editing weren't kind of in concert with one another. Mm-hmm. But the cinematography on its own, if I'm looking at, at these scenes and these shots, I'm just like, yeah, this is beautiful. And... And that's what I was talking about when it comes to kind of atmosphere, too. Right. You know, I, I think that that's um, it's it's really beautiful, the, the lighting and cinematography. Right. I mean, to Morgan's previous point, I did think that the the country bar scene was one of the best in the film overall. Yeah. It's you like the two characters, the setting feels it feels natural in a way that where a lot of the rest of the film, partly because she's a superstar. So she lives in this like insane house. Right. Mm-hmm. That's it. Which I, I I saw was like isn't that the Godfather like Horsehead House which it, it turned out it oh was. wow okay yeah, yeah. okay any case and so I thought that was really everything about that scene was really really I nicely loved it. done yeah and to your point April yeah I do think the cinematography there were a lot of like really great shots we didn't have, we didn't, we didn't really mention this yet but Whitney's performance of I Have Nothing in Miami Ooh. oh another yeah. incredible outfit. And the one, Incredible. And the, the most sustained musical moment in the film, we can come back to this in the second half of, of today's episode, but I just thought that was actually really, really nicely done too. Though I do have a small nitpick about that, but we'll, we'll come back to that later. Okay. You do? Yeah, I'll get to it right now. Okay. Um, she's performing the song as it's recorded for the soundtrack, which is fully produced. What we see on stage is it's her and a piano, but there is clearly... A percussion section, a rhythm section, and a horn section. Yeah. Maybe string accompaniment. I don't remember right off the top. 
None of that's visible. And what you're seeing does not line up to what you're hearing. Right. And I think for most, because, and this says a lot about the transcendence of Houston's voice. Yeah. You don't really care and you probably normally would never notice. But for me, because I, especially for this series, I'm always thinking about the intersection between music and image. And so that kind of disjuncture between she only has a piano on stage. Right. Where the hell is the rest of this music coming from? Is she lip syncing? Then why is the pianist there? Right. Like it just doesn't make a lot of visual logical sense to me. But that's really, it's a very small nitpick. Production. And that's yeah. a production thing. Because right. sometimes as a music supervisor, we have to do on cameras and sometimes right. Right. things, you know, Directions get changed, and so you might have had in mind this whole band, and they're not there for whatever the reason is. There's mm-hmm. some union situations. Yeah. So I thought that might have been a production thing or a last-minute decision, Cer- certainly. but yeah. it didn't line up. Right. So I feel I feel you there. But it's still a great perf- performative moment. Cause Absolutely. Just, I mean, the, the wavering of her mouth. And this is something I think when Houston sings is you just you, you, you pay so much attention to her face and her gestures, and, and that performance of it is also, I think, such a striking thing when we think about Houston and, and across her her career. Just real quick, we have this clip of Whitney talking about some of the themes. You don't get them in the end. Is that because of the Hollywood code says that a black woman shouldn't have a white man in the end? <laughs> Um, <laughs> that wasn't written in the script. <laughs> it was written like he goes his way and she goes hers, you know? Um, that's it. It wasn't that she can't have him because he's white, <laughs> you know? I mean, come on, look at our world and look how we're living. I mean, it's every day you see white and black people together. Yes, but not in Hollywood films. Well, this, now you got it. This is new. Here you have it. So much of this movie afterwards was about the controversy between how audiences were ready for her and Kevin Costner to be together mm-hmm. and um, about that last kiss. Like, were they going to do it? Were they not going to do it? Were they going to do it for so long? And it is a long, built-up scene from the swirling. You saw it last night, right? Yeah, yeah. You watched it again from yeah, that yeah. to, like— That's know. a Michael Bass, you know, camera <laughs> swirl is. right there. It is, right? And it went That's on and on That's where he got it from, on. yeah, yep. yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, because that was a, a point of contention. Should we do this and should there be tongue? Should there not? Whatever. Because I came up. Was there tongue in that scene? No. Okay. That kiss was dry as bones. Yeah. That was dry as bones. <laughs> there, but that was, I mean, there were a lot of conversations around that time about interracial um, love affairs on screen. Remember Pelican Brief? Yes. And Denzel right. Washington and, right. and him being like, no, I'm not going to kiss her. I'm not going, you know, like he was the one who was just like, maybe not sure (laughs) like if i can't kiss a black woman on screen then i'm not really going to kiss julia roberts it's not appropriate for this movie right and different politics with a black woman kissing a white yeah exactly different politics but controversial nonetheless yeah we will be back with more of our conversation with april wolf about the bodyguard after a brief word from a couple of our max fun sibling podcasts keep it locked Hey everyone, Mujan Zulfikari here with the cast of Mission to Zix. Hello. 
Our fourth season premieres on February 19th. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the show, we decided to ask one of our characters to give you a quick recap of what's happened so far. So say hi, C-53. Hello, I'm happy of service. C, could you tell us what's happening in the Zix Quadrant leading up to season four? Certainly. The evil Nerd Bundle, not to be confused with the non-evil Nerd Bundle of no relation, murdered his fellow counselors and crowned himself Emperor of the Galaxy. With the help of myself and the rest of the crew of the Barbarian Jade, Zim and I plucked decks that are not the Emperor and an ancient cosmic entity known as Bino into a chasm aboard the gigantic Planet Crusher Crusher, a machine built to crush planet crushers, which in turn were designed to crush planets. The resulting implosion created a vast celestial object with unknown powers. We are currently in search of our former rebel commander, Sisu Gundu, who may yet reunite our fractured galaxy. Is that sufficient? Yeah, all clear to me. Mission to Zix, Season 4, debuts on February 19th on Maximum Fun. Macho man to the top rope. The flying elbow, the cover. We've got a new champion. We're here with Macho Man Randy Savage after his big win to become the new world champion. What are you going to do now, Match? I'm going to go listen to the newest episode of the Tights and Fights podcast. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about this podcast. It's the podcast of power. Too sweet to be sour. Funky like a monkey. Woke discussions, man. And jokes about wrestlers' fashion choices. Myself excluded. Yeah. I can't wait to listen. Neither can I. You can find it Thursdays on Maximum Fun. Oh, yeah, dig it. Yo, and we're back on Heat Rocks, and we're talking the Bodyguard soundtrack with April Wolf. April, if I can just start with a, a brief tangent here, is I write a lot about music, but I have never written a song. So I'm wondering, what is it like to go from reviewing and writing about films to actually writing a film? For me, it's two sides of the same coin, because I was writing films before I was reviewing them. Oh, okay. And I think that that gave me a nice insight. And then I actually, you know, a lot of people come here to make it to Los Angeles. And I was just like, well, maybe I just won't be one of those people who gets to make it. And so then I started writing about film on the other side to be like, oh, well, at least I can be involved and I can be, uh, you know, involved in a conversation of criticism. And to me, I think that that's really vital because I, I try to approach criticism from a really positive angle from, you know, the production standpoint and the actual creation of it. But then, of course, I finally got a chance and now I'm writing it. And to me, it's just it, it those two are um, they're in conversation with one another. Yeah. And that, you know, hopefully that my background being a critic um, forces me to try to do things that w- will make me a little bit scared mm-hmm. and not be um, too relaxed and mm-hmm. what I'm doing. What I always imagine would be, especially imagine writing a song, is that every time I sit down to analyze someone else's music, if I were to sit down to write music, I would just be thinking of the person like me sitting down, listening to this and what they would say. And mm-hmm. that would, for me, be kind of intimidating because I'm not the harshest person out there. But nonetheless, you know, I have certainly written critical things about different things across time. And so that would be kind of in the back of my head. I'm wondering for you, did you hear your did you hear April Wolf, the critic voice in the back of your head as you're writing as you're writing the film? Yes. But, you know, she's also very generous. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, I think that. You know, if you come from a a background of criticism that is really about the joy of the work, which I know, I mean, I've read and listened to your work, and I know that you guys are very much about the joy of um, the work and celebrating the good things. Yeah. Um, I I think that you are 
you know, not as harsh on yourself. But I mean, it just it's a challenge. Like, I think that it's one of those things where I would write a line of dialogue and be like, oh, this is terrible. (laughs) Like, I must get it out. And I I think if you have a journalism background, too, you're used to people editing you constantly and being like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. And the kind of thick skin that you get from that, Mm -hmm, that is mm -hmm. really, really great for screenwriting. Mm. Because so many screenwriters are so fucking precious. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, Morgan's mom. They're so precious about um, their words. Like, oh, no one could ever write this. And it's like, "Mm, we're not all Charlie Kaufman, you know, like, <laughs> have some humility. Yeah. And um, and I think that that's just kind of necessary for for that type of career. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for indulging me on that one. Bringing this back to the bodyguard and we, the first half we went in on the film. Let's really, really get into the soundtrack and the music now. And Morgan, I'm wondering as Besides being the resident uh, Whitneyologist, but also, I think, <laughs> someone who was very intensely, I think, thinking about music in 92, uh, especially R&B uh, and pop, how do you think this soundtrack stacks up as a snapshot of what music sounded like in that era? Perfect. Especially when you um, – let's talk about two songs in particular. One is uh, Jesus Loves Me. Mm. It is very much um, what 90s gospel sounded like. It is very much – um, the Winans. It is very much a, a mixture of uh, BB and CC, and is very much a mixture of R and B and um, and gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, Whitney's whole gospel background and being the daughter of Sissy Houston, but it's not '50s '60s gospel. It is '90s gospel, and what's that? What that sounds like? And it's a a crafty '90s way to sneak gospel into an R and B soundtrack, which yeah. I thought was perfect. Sometimes the soundtrack was better than the movie. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people bought the soundtrack and hated the movie. People used to care about soundtracks a little bit more than the than film. they do. Yeah, and it's like that was their main mode of like, oh, we'll be fine. People will go see the movie because they we released the soundtrack. That's we, it. We got a number one single. So that's it. Right. That's it. And that's I, how we end up with Cats in that, 2019. I love Cats. Let's not get into Cats. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next episode. Next episode. <laughs> Keep it moving. <laughs> I love the the um the story of Jesus loves me and Whitney calling up uh BB Winans and being like, "Hey, can you um maybe write a second verse to this?" It's a classic. And it's just like, yeah. That's a flex. That is a flex, you know. Classic. And that's what the and and that's the pull that Whitney had, but that is also how big BB and CC Winans were and how they slid into their their gospel music was was also called urban contemporary mm-hmm. and that was a that was something that they really introduced to the mainstream and this is classic that and from what that. i understand too along these lines there was a lot of just that kind of outreach Obviously, I think in order to get I Will Always Love You cleared, there had to be a conversation. I don't know if for it was sure. directly between Whitney and Dolly, but this song doesn't get made for this film without Dolly having some say in it. Oh, no. Um, you know, she covers, uh, Whitney covers Shaka Khan. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, Shaka was in the video for the, the, the this version of, of I'm Every Woman. So I do love just imagining what those conversations would have been like. Like you get a call, like you're Shaka Khan, you get a call from Whitney and it's like, hey, Shaka's Whitney. 
I really want to cover I'm Every Woman for this new film. And by the way, it's not going to end up in the film. It's just going to be in the soundtrack. But, but are you okay with that? I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit more involved. It's probably more attorneys involved in the combo. But, yeah, sure. but nonetheless, just artists at that level having those negotiations and conversations. You, it, it's, it's, it's one of those kind of game uh, recognize game and respect game kind of things, right? I can imagine that Shaka Khan was probably like, this is cool because I know you, but I'm sure Dolly Parton was probably really flattered. And people that ask her now, like, how did she feel about it? Because right. Whitney took it on, and I think she said something like, I, I laughed all the way to the bank. Yeah. Um, because Whitney blew this all the way up. Yeah, it's just like, okay, then all of a sudden people are listening to my version. But I think yeah. also they um, they didn't um, even listen to Dolly Parton's version. They only listened to Linda, Linda Ronstadt's mm. version. Which was missing the last verse, from right. my understanding. Right. So yeah. They had to go back and say, you know, there's a third verse, and then, yeah. okay, we got to go re-record We this have to re-record, that's... yeah. And yeah. that third verse is actually, I think, the most powerful moment in the song is yeah. because it's when you actually bring in the full band um, and just boom, right? So that's one of the greatest. Um, and I know you want to talk about it, but that, but that, that placement, how they brought the song in mm-hmm. in the film, is perfect. I would only be in your way, so I'll go. But I know. I'll think of you. It's so unusual to hear any pop song that begins like that. And it would it works within a soundtrack because you don't need it to have the kind of it's not a song that was made for radio initially, right? It's made for the movie. So you can get away with doing an a cappella opening whereas if you're making if you're in the studio and you're cutting a song that you want to get onto, well, back in the 90s onto radio, you just couldn't do that. It wouldn't work. You would have to have music that opens it. But I think because this version was made for the soundtrack for the and for yeah. the film, you can do that. And I and to the point that both of you are making, it is extraordinary. And you just, I mean, we've 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 talked about Whitney on this show before, but you can never say enough about the quality and the clarity of that voice. Mm-mm. And just having her open with that song a cappella, it's all there is that you can that you focus on, and it's 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 incredible. And it is incredible, and it's also um, a flex of all the decision making that she made in that song. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, and that comes with having that sort of range where she starts, where she finishes, when she decides to go up, um, how she ends it, how she draws out that, that last note. Yeah. After Whitney passed, people started releasing her a cappellas. And just listening to those acapellas, you were like, well, damn, why did anyone even go to the instrument after that? Mm-hmm. But that's Whitney all around, just like her, her, just the pureness of her voice, the choices that she made, the range that she had, which en- enabled her to make those decisions. I think also, I mean, that, that decision that she made to not have studio musicians playing with her at that time so that she could be guiding the timing yes and and allowing and the because the studio mis- musicians would never be able to keep up or understand like when she was going to pause or for how long she was right. going to pause so it's just like she is like the you know the conductor right. of this symphony as she's performing and i just i love that it's it's her she's she is the guiding force yeah. of the entire song and and everyone kind of supports her mm. we'll always love you Love you. 
What to you is the fire track on the soundtrack, independent of its use in the film, but just in terms of when you're going through the soundtrack, what is the one song here that you think is just fire? And maybe it is I Will Always Love You, which would make great sense since it was the big hit. April? I I mean, I think I'm split. I Will Always Love You is going to be one of my favorite songs yeah. from any person who's who's had the <laughs> the guts to cover it and do it well, sure. um, which takes so much. And I love the arrangement of it. Mm-hmm. I'm always perplexed that it's the first song on the soundtrack, though, which is doesn't make total sense to me in terms of like sequencing sequencing yeah Yeah. um but i have to say that i have listened to i'm every woman so many times in my life like i think last thanksgiving we listened to every single um remix Mm -hmm. of it that Mm -hmm. we could find and there are a lot of remixes of that song and it is one that we listened to for like two hours straight and it was like i'm not bored of this song at all And I love the early 90s house beat, which is so distinctive of that moment. And it takes me back to, and I was never a heavy house kid, but I I heard enough of it that the kind of the signature sounds of what house sounded like in 1991, 92 is all right there. Along those lines, though, in terms of being of its time, but not nearly as charming to me, was that Soul System song, <laughs> It's Gonna Be a Lovely Day, which is, it's not, it's neither a remix nor a cover of Bill Withers, but it's obviously riffing on Bill, River, yeah. Bill Withers' original Lovely Day. And this, to me, is everything I disliked about a certain kind of hip-hop adjacent style of, of music of that era, because the rapping is not good, mm-hmm. the production is super derivative. I tried. I did look this up. I didn't spend a lot of time, but Soul System. If you look in the soundtrack, it's spelled like an acronym, but I can't find what the acronym is for S O U L S Y S T E M. And uh, this was not my fire track, but it is to my earlier question. It actually does make sense to be on here because it is very '92, just not the '92 I care to remember. Yeah, it, it is very '92. What was your fire track on the soundtrack? You know, that's tough. Um, for obvious spiritual reasons, and because I know my mother's listening to this, my favorite track is Jesus Loves Me. <laughs> hands down. Hands down. No, I, I you know, my, my first love is gospel music, so yeah, I love that track. Of course. But I love Run To You. Mm. I love Run To You. I just like Whitney's vocal performance on this. Yeah. Um, there's such a, an innocence about I Want to Run To You. And it's the song that... Um, keeps getting every time well when american idol was hot people would always audition doing whitney songs and we'd always be like why are you doing whitney songs Mm -hmm. and hands down they would either be doing run to you or i have nothing which are super ambitious super ambitious but it's one of my favorites it's it's just there's just something about the whitney that i like to see which is the innocent church girl and this big thing happened to her called fame and it changed her don't you hold me in your arms and keep me safe 
it's been well established. You are a New Jack swing fan. I am a New Jack swing so fan. So what do you think of Queen of the Night? I love Queen of the Night. I hated it. Come on, man. <laughs> what? Queen of the Night is fire. It's, it's like my it's like name C. is not Ray Janet Jackson. No, 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 no. It's like my name is not Susan. It's Whitney coming out of this this sort of pop sensibility and being like, I'm raw. Plus, I got the silver breastplate on. Oh, no, I'm, I'm coming to get you. Oh, yeah, that, that Cleopatra. Yeah, that I'm coming to get fire. you. That was fire. I think the song is just everything I don't like about New Jack. This song encapsulates. It is fire. <laughs> if this was Siskel and Ebert, we would be in the back. Right. You know rolling each other up but queen of the night probably to me is one of my favorite moments of this the performance one of my favorite moments of this film right it's sexy it is it's got a rock edge come on april help me out here i think it's just fun i don't know that it's the most fire track obviously on this but it is exactly what you need to have a kind of variation in the music and in in the tone of of this movie, you know, I think it, it fits it quite well. While we're still on the soundtrack, do we like any of the non-Whitney songs on, on this? Because half of the soundtrack are not Whitney songs. You have... Kenny G and Aaron Neville with even uh, if my heart would break. Somehow it seems pitch perfect that Kenny G would be on this soundtrack. Yeah. Um, you have Lisa Stanfield uh, doing uh, Someday I'm Coming Back. Uh, we mentioned Soul Systems. It's going to be a lovely day. Um, Joe Cocker, of all people, gets on here with Trust in Me featuring Sash Jordan. Mm-hmm. I, I like the Lisa Stansfield song. Okay. I, li- I like Someday. Okay. I like her voice, too. She's, I love, yeah. she's got a very strange but discernible voice. Yep. All I can hope is that you ask me to come back home. Someday I'm coming back and it won't be long before you call me tell me to come So we've talked about the fire track off the soundtrack. But in terms of the fire, the fire moment musically within the film, what are some of your favorites? And for me, I think number one has to be, we talked about this in the first half, it is the performance of I Have Nothing mm-hmm. in that stage in Miami. And even though I was nitpicking the fact that the sound and image don't quite match, whatever. I mean, this this song is incredible. It is, if, if you know, I Will Always Love You is the A+, plus. this is at least like an A, like it comes super close in terms of the quality of the performance. And the way in which the patience, unlike I think other parts of the film where the music doesn't, you don't get enough of it long enough with maybe the exception of I Will Love You at the at the uh, end of the film. But you actually really just get to pay attention to Whitney's performance of it and the way that it's shot, the, the outfit that she's wearing in Miami, the yeah. whole nine is is perfect. And how close they are to her face exactly. during that shot, yeah. I will hold it back again, this passion inside in 
I'm not mistaken, this was a song written for the film. Sure. Right. Unlike some of the other stuff that were, which were covers, but this was something that was designed for the film. And I, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I actually really like the John Doe performance of I Will Always Love You. And you can quibble over, maybe they should have picked a different person to perform it. But I just like hearing the song come on as they're slow dancing. And there's something, if, if I had more time, I'd come up with like a, a list of best slow dance moments in sure. films. Because the song has to work there. Of the way I will love you. Oh, I will always love you. Also, I think in terms of filmmaking, what they're trying to do is make it um, uh, uh, an extension of, of him. Yeah. Right. So if it's an extension of oh. Kevin Costner, then yeah, you kind of want like a, you know, a pastier white right. version of it. <laughs> See, because this is like April's yeah. want. Sure. She's breaking it down. Yeah. Yeah. It's his dialogue to her, oh. and yeah. she returns with her dialogue to him. And so you kind of have to have it in, in that particular voice, right. I think. So how about for each of you, favorite musical moments within the film? I like Queen of the Night. Yeah. That, that whole scene. Uh, yeah. I, I love that moment. I think this is. Whitney is a big, huge star. Mm -hmm. That moment says it. From what she's wearing to how she bodies that performance to everything that happens after that performance, that's one of my favorite moments. I mean, I'm not going to take anything away from I Will Always Love You. I've already talked about how I feel about that. But that, to me, sold the Whitney is major. She's made and she's major. She looked incredible. That costume was incredible. The crowd, that just gave me chills chills looking, looking at it again. I'm so basic, but it's that pause before she hits that the final part of "I will always love you." It, that, I mean, pause, that pause is everything. It pause is everything. Pregnant. Yeah. It is pun intended. Big. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Love. You didn't mention also when you went through the track list, Curtis Steiger's I did singing not. What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. And it's funny because he's an Idaho legend. Uh, <laughs> Say more. You, I, I sense that you know a little something about Idaho legends here. I, I lived in Boise for a time when I was teaching at Boise State. And it was, and I worked at the record store there um, called the Record Exchange, which is it's an amazing record store. And people who were touring, it's a, it's a great town for music because people who were touring would go through. And like, there's so many amazing um, uh, LPs there for so cheap. And yeah, it was a great place. But he would always come in and he was like a rock star there. Mm. And it, it is because of being on this bodyguard soundtrack. Oh, and it is wow. okay. and it is so strange that his entire career was made and supported by this one cover song that he did being on this stellar soundtrack. And um I you know, he totally fine, nice gentleman, but like I don't I'm still trying to figure out like why this song is on it. Like it doesn't totally make sense to me. But I think Kevin Costner was a fan of him and had fought for it. And it was just kind of like his, you know, favorite kind of like white man jazz of of flavor of that time, you know. The 
saxophone has had a long, proud history in pop music, but then at some point between probably 85 to 95, it just took a real downturn. I don't think it's really come back. I mean, there's some decent sax on To Pimp a Butterfly, for example. Sure. Right? Some attempts to, to resurrect it, but I just feel like a once majestic instrument has really fallen on hard times, and unfortunately, I feel like this era that we're listening to right now is was partly responsible for that. <laughs> I feel so bad, though. I mean, it's a fine inter- instrument. Someone should bring it back. That's real. That's real, April. But I think in the 80s, it's, the sax showed up in so many pop jams, and there was always someone playing sax in the background. Yeah. And I think towards the end, it's, it just sort of got corny mm-hmm. in a way. Right. And it shouldn't be. Yeah, we, I was just talking about the Lost Boys on uh, Switchblade Sisters. Oh, that soundtrack. And Sax Man is on it. Tina Turner's saxophone Ooh. player is is on uh, in a very prominent scene in that movie and he's just like oiled and like almost wearing like a Tarzan outfit and he's giant you know oh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen Tina Turner's old sax player but mm. he's, you clearly he's got a look but, but now, now look. I want to now I want to yeah yeah and 92 was when wasn't that when Bill Clinton went on the Arsenio show playing the sax yes With the glasses maybe Bill killed it Bill, yeah. <laughs> no he he like for half a second he made every every young white boy in my school take up the sax and there, I remember there was like one kid named Joe who like would always wear like the Tom Cruise sunglasses yeah. and he would like for any kind of school assembly he would just go out there and perform a saxophone and thinking he was so cool and all the girls loved him and I was just like does anyone else think this is weird it is weird <laughs> but shout out to that dude though wherever you are right now for those moments but Bill did come on the yeah. Arsenio show well with his lokes and with the sax I'm going to cycle back to something I said at, at the beginning, which is I think the bones of this idea, however you want to quibble about the execution of the film back in 92, I don't think it was a bad idea. I'm genuinely surprised they haven't tried to remake this film with the, <laughs> with the exception of The Hitman's Bodyguard, which was the parody film with Sam Jackson mm-hmm. and Ryan Reynolds a few years ago. But this would seem ripe for a remake. And maybe it would be Beyonce or if you're not going to stay with the interracial casting, I don't know, could Gaga play this role? Like what would what would the bodyguard in twenty twenty look and sound like? Who would be in it, and what kind of music would we have with it? Although I've thought about this because I was pitching. <laughs> well, let's, let's oh, talk Lord. about this okay. now, April. Okay. Uh, Without giving away too many secrets here, we don't want we don't want you to give away the farm here. But no, but I think this is particularly the kind of vehicle that people would be looking to right. Gaga for specifically, mm. um, and I feel like. If it were Beyonce, it would have to be a different tone, an interesting yes. tone. I'm trying to think of like, you know, her film work with Melina Matsukas is just like, okay, I think it would have to be. Um, well, she was supposed to be in A Star is Born. Yeah. 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 She was supposed to be in A Star is Born. And I think something didn't work work out there. So that's how they ended up with Gaga. Mm. But the first choice I, I heard was Beyonce. So. I just want to say, though, if they remade this in 2020 with Beyonce, they have to have Solange as the Nikki role. <laughs> That's yes. Cold-blooded. It has to be. But it's got to be. <laughs> but that'd be tough. That'd be tough. And see, I'd like to see Rihanna. If they did it again, I, my vote would probably be Rihanna. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, Rihanna is an interesting uh, character match for that. I like um, I like what she was doing. Was, was it Ocean's 8 was this she was in? Yeah, Ocean's yeah. 8. And I, and I think she'd be good. I think she'd be good here. I was also thinking maybe, and this would, if you want to give it a whole different kind of gender and sexuality twist, recast this with Janelle Monet in the Whitney's character, and then Tessa Thompson as the bodyguard. 
Because she's, I mean, Tessa's got the action background. Janelle, I think, has a lot of presence. And that, to me, would be a really interesting look. I'm not mad at that. I'm centrally about don't remake this. That's where that's where I am. Yeah. yeah. Leave it as it is. But if we had to, these discussions but are fair. Why do, why do you think this film is so precious that you couldn't remake it? I don't know that it's necessarily the film. I think it's just Whitney so precious. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, there's a lot of pressure to beat a $400 million soundtrack. Well, I think if you remake the film, unless it's a meta reference, you don't use the songs. And you, I think you can't use I Will Always Love You, except if there's a similar bar scene where two people are slow dancing, then you can play the Whitney version. Sure. You do not come back oh. to that song in the film. Yeah. You yeah. just can't. You can't. And I, I, I just, think you'd have to separate yourself completely, completely from, from the Like from it the would film. have to be very different. Right. I would I would not think, because I think that you are exactly correct in the fact that beating the soundtrack is would be impossible and there would yeah. be expectations laid upon you right, if right. you were even attempting to, to do and that. And you can't match that. Yeah. So it's like maybe it wouldn't even be a pop star. Maybe it would be hmm? someone else, you know? Yeah. Not to say that, that everything was perfect about this film, but for me, I'd be like, damn. But but again, if they had to do it, I'd love to see Rihanna playing the role. I'd I like to, that. I'd love to see her play so the role. So who plays Costner to her then? I suppose it to our listeners. If you had to do this again and we cast Rihanna in the lead, who would you want to be the bodyguard? How about uh, Joaquin Phoenix? No. <laughs> just cre- <laughs> just creepy. Your, your bodyguard's trying to kill you. Yeah, okay? I, I think it's, it'd be a little... <laughs> <laughs> I think I would start watching it and be like, "Oh no, it's him. He's, yeah. he's exactly. The one. He's no the... one will believe it." If yeah, at the end of the film, it's like, "Oh, are we sure?" Right. <laughs> like, he... Maybe do a background check on this man. <laughs> if your sister doesn't take you out, your bodyguard will. The bodyguard starring Joaquin Phoenix. So, April, if you had to describe uh, the bodyguard, whether the film and/or the soundtrack, in three words, what three words would you choose? Um, star power. Mm. There's an elegance to it. Okay. And um, 1992. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Real talk. That's For right. sure. Spot on. Spot on. For sure. If listeners enjoy this week's movie and soundtrack, what recommendations should they put on their list next? And I'll start off, and this is not a soundtrack. This is really a movie. Um, But I would suggest check out Yojimbo, the 1961 Kurosawa and Mifune film, the samurai western that was a huge influence on Kazan for wanting to write the film. And you actually see them, they go watch the film for a date night, which, again, I'm not, that does not ring true that... The two of them are going on their first date. They're going to go watch an art house uh, revival, <laughs> uh, you know, screening of Yojimbo. But nonetheless, Yojimbo is a great film. And if you've never seen it before, uh, you'll understand how why so many people ripped off Kurosawa and Mufune from this era. Uh, maybe it had a really good soundtrack. I don't quite remember, but it's certainly a very good film. Morgan? I'd say stay with Whitney. Yeah. And I'd say go to the Preacher's Wife mm. soundtrack or also go to Waiting to Exhale. I think you have two elements. I think you have the 90s thing, the baby face brought to wait, Waiting to Exhale, mm-hmm. and you just have Whitney in perfection. And yeah. if you liked um, G- Yes, Jesus Loves Me As I Do, What's Up, Mom? Then uh, go ahead to the Preacher's Wife soundtrack, which was the best-selling gospel uh, record of all time. Wait, even more than Aretha's? 
Even more than Aretha's. Whoa. Yeah. It sold more. Yeah, mind yeah. flow. April, what would you suggest our listeners well, watch or listen to next? I think I would probably go to the other side of the 90s mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, R&B and pop singers working into acting. And just, you know, check out the Poetic Justice yeah. soundtrack, which I think Morgan's talked call. about quite a bit. Yep. But when I'm thinking about, like, things that pair with this, it's just like the 90s weren't just this. The 90s were other things, too. And I think that those kind of those two soundtracks kind of envelop um, a certain kind of, um, you know, Hollywood new and, and old that, that was coming about at the Indeed. At that time. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, April Wolf. April, of course, hosts the Max Fun podcast, Switchblade Sisters. What else are you working on right now? Things I can't talk about. Okay. <laughs> but non disclosure agreement is away. Okay. Same. Yeah. Where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter too much, so people can always look for me there. I always have my announcements there, but it's at, uh, at April Wolf. Yeah, at a wolfful. Okay. Like a handful, but it's a wolfful. There you go. Yeah. Nice. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where the queens and kings of the night roam freely. We'd like to thank our five-star iTunes reviewers, the most recent being J1180, who wrote in simply to say, quote, if you are a record lover, this is for you, unquote. Thank you, J1180. If you, listeners who are not J1180, have not had a chance yet, please do consider leaving us a review. It's such an important way for new listeners to find their way to us. We also want to thank our social media fans and family, including the following folks. Jacoby81, who was really into the Juice episode with Sean Fennessy. Also want to thank uh, Mark Allerton for speaking up on that episode. Want to thank Spike Eskin, uh, MJ Radio, L Podcast, which liked our episode with Justin Simeon uh, about Michael Jackson. We also want to thank thank Purposeide. <laughs> Shout out to, to Purposeide. Thank you so much. We also want to thank Briggy Smalls, Brigham Fisher. Man, thank y'all for having some of the best Twitter handles of, of ever. We have the best Twitter handle followers. Benjamin Myers, Alexa Von Hirschberg. We also want to thank Trisha's Jackson, who was really into the Portishead episode. And last but not least, we want to thank Miguel Stenberg. We do so appreciate the Tweezies and the Retweezies. Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.